Hi, this is Dr. Harry Lee Poe, author of The Completion of C.S. Lewis, From War to Joy. You're listening to Pints with Jack. A lighted door was open. There were voices from within, and they were speaking English. There was a familiar smell. He pushed his way in, regardless of the surprise he was creating, and walked to the bar. A pint of bitter, please said Ransom. This is Pints with Jack, Season 6, Episode 24. Down to Earth, Out of the Silent Planet, Chapter 21. Welcome everyone. Here on Pints with Jack, we're reading our way through the works of C.S. Lewis. I'm David, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Father Andrew and Brother Matt. This season, we find ourselves among the stars, reading through the first of C.S. Lewis's science fiction trilogy, Out of the Silent Planet. And in today's episode, Ransom, Weston, and Divine return to Earth. We'll hear how this journey compares to their outbound journey, and learn about the first thing Ransom does when he arrives home. Throughout the season, we've been naming each episode after a movie title, since Lewis doesn't give his chapters any names. And today's episode is named after Down to Earth, a 2001 movie starring Chris Rock. And since I'm leading today, Batesian rigidity regarding timing will be strictly enforced. Although I will take a moment to point out that a patron, Jonah Losh, came up with a new term for this. Since I have been identified, quite correctly, I might add, as a fiffletrig, Batesian rigidity might also be called fiffletrigidity. So fiffletrigidity will be in full force today. Anyway, how are you doing, gentlemen? Ready to return to Earth? <laughs> I'm a little salty. Just a little salty right now. <laughs> Matt did not like the... No, we, we had this debate of what should be the episode quotation. And I no, liked... No, we didn't. No, we didn't. Yeah, there we was didn't no debate. debate. Yeah, you're correct. I gave you a few those. options and the majority won. <laughs> yeah, that's correct. There was no debate. Matt was silenced, censored. I liked the one, you have shown me more wonders than are known in the whole of heaven. And my argument was this entire book is about turning our idea of space to the heavens and teeming with life and entering into it. And I'm thinking of the Trinitarian dance and all of this good stuff. And instead, we went with a pint of bitter. You know, I guess our animal instincts, I guess the animal instincts won the sorn in me lost. It's okay. Matt, you may be right, but um, whether or not you are right, I... uh... I, I do salute you, and in fact, I, I toast your nobility with a pint of bitter, please. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, at least he's not bitter. Uh, oh, I'm going to push wow. back on Matt's assessment of that line. I think it's a great line, but I don't think mm-hmm. it quite means what I think he means. I think it's a great line, but I don't think it means what he thinks it means. I know, but we can pretend it means this great thing. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, Yar says that. <laughs> well, and I think that we certainly can agree that it's a target-rich environment when it comes to um, to great lines. And so, True. but we can just because Yar said it, it means even Oyarsa had a chance to even see even more in the heavens. So just imagine what we all can see more in the heavens. So I still think I can make the connection indirectly, David. <laughs> yes, but I'd rather come back home, right? And I'd rather come back home to a place where they have proper bitter. I get it. That's the animal. It's it's the animal inside you. We'll unbody you at some point. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's when I have a pint or two that I get elevated 
uh, above the animal inside me. And I start thinking of, um, like Lewis says, with our drinks at our elbows and the whole world and something beyond the world opens itself to our imaginations. And so that's what a pint of bitter does for me. I'm sorry it doesn't do it for you yet. <laughs> well, and in fairness, this is I'm the perfect quote kidding, of the week for our drink of the week. Um, this will be yeah. a perfect quote. Well, we've used up most of the time arguing about this, but do you guys have any updates before we move on to the toast? <laughs> no, we recorded this right after. If you want to know our updates, guys, listen to the previous episode. <laughs> well, I actually do have one update. At the Wade Center, a new garden was named Aslan's Garden, and it was dedicated to Marjorie Mead. So congratulations to her. Oh, to Marge Mead. We can have a second toast to Marge Mead. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers. To Marge. To Marge and to the wonders and the whole of heaven, Marge. Marge is an old, old friend for many years, and she has done uh, really incredible work. Uh, listeners, in our last episode, you heard some thunderclaps and the thunder still rolling around. It's crazy. It's pouring rain outside my window, but the sun is shining. So I imagine that there's a marvelous rainbow somewhere. And these are the kinds of things that don't happen on Malacondra. They only happen in a place where you can get a pint of bitter, if you please. And speaking of which, today we are drinking bitter. Matthew Boland, yes. a listener, has very generously sent each of us a bottle of something he brewed, which he calls Ransom's Bitter. Matthew, I'm so excited to drink this. Me oh, too. Like, I'm thank thrilled. You. In fact, I've been <laughs> freezing my pints with uh, my pints with Jack glass all day, and it's just a perfect <laughs> color. I just only wish that we were all together, friends, and in a pub. Well, let's uh, continue our tradition of toasting in a foreign language. Uh, this time in Korean, which is konbei. Literally, it means empty glass. And Ooh, I'll do the toast today. You know, and Andrew, I'll take this toast to our top tier supporter. Great. Okay. Patience. May you be shown the immense wonders that are in the whole of heaven. Gombe. Gombe. And patience. Maybe you be remembered amongst faithful friends in their cups drinking up. Never mind. Gombe. <laughs> Andrew, when you made that one comment like of 30 seconds ago, I was like, oh, just wait. I'm going to get my moment. <laughs> Matthew, like this is incredible. We got to give him our thoughts. Yes. We can't. Matthew. I mean, this um, is. Hmm. I'm not usually a bitter person. I'm not actually not a beer person. Um, I could 100% sip on this. It's a very light bitter but mm -hmm. it really still has the flavor though the irony about bitter is that it's it's more malty than hoppy and hops makes mm, beer yeah. too bitter for me and so it's yeah, a bitter I like that hops. i really like um, this is delicious easily my preference i loved going the to the pub with malcolm geit and he walked in and said to the bartender mine's a pint <laughs> so, and yes, I have walked to men, to the to many bars in England and said that exact line, a pint of bitter, please, because that just makes me happy. Mm. So and a very generous bottle. I you know, I'd be interested in buying a six pack of this, Matthew. So I actually would too. If I actually saw this somewhere, I'd buy it. Wait, we need to we need to start a sub industry. I think I would really like that. Well, here is my one hundred word summary of the story so far. Taken by force to Mars by Western and Divine, Ransom escapes, taking refuge with the planet's inhabitants and learning their language. Ransom and his abductors are eventually brought back together at the island of Meldalorn, 
They are interviewed by Oyasa, the tutelary spirit of the planet, who asks about their motives for coming to his planet. Using Ransom as a translator, Weston outlines his plan to spread mankind throughout the galaxy, replacing the local inhabitants of any planet they find. After hearing Weston's scheme, Oyasa announces that they are to be sent back to Earth and never allowed to return. So, following Oyasa's pronouncement that Weston and Divine are to be banished, he spends the rest of the afternoon asking Ransom questions. And the narrator tells us that he's not allowed to recount the content of that conversation other than that it ended with the words, You have shown me more wonders than are known in the whole of heaven. Mm. Mm. So what are these wonders that even exceed the heavens? What do you think he was told? Since it's it's Ransom giving him the answers and it's about Thulchandra, my best guess is it's it's honestly the wonders of the extent of the brokenness, I'd imagine, or the bentness. I'd, I'd, I'd guess that he couldn't understand the full scope of how bad things could get. I mean, he was sort of shocked by West and Divine. But then also... I, I don't know this, to be honest. I don't know if we have evidence that Ransom can speak to, quote unquote, Jesus Christ or Maladorn or the, the Jesus Christ figure. But potentially the, the Christian story of entering into the bentness and what that salvation story is, quote unquote, in this context here. I think that you're really close to it. I think that when he says in a previous chapter, oh, that's I'll take that, Andrew. You know, I'll take that. No, I forgot I to throw until we have faces. Though you're right, so he probably talked about the book <laughs> till we have faces. No need, no need. It'll come out of its own accord. <laughs> um, I think that what happens, he dared something. I can't remember the exact phrase that Maladil, blessed be he, dared strange feats. Um, in Thulchandra. And so I think what, what Ransom fills him in on, um, because it says in the scripture that the angels long to look into the things of salvation, I think that what he tells him about is the passion. I think mm -hmm. he tells him about the sufferings of Christ mm -hmm. and the hypostatic union, right? Um, how Malaldil became a now and remains a now. I think that he tells him how Christ suffered, died, and rose again which is something that you never see anywhere else. You know, if that's if if we take that now is is true, it really also indirectly offers a beauty to our situation. Because you mm -hmm. could read this book and you could think, man, we got a bad. <laughs> I would love to just be a part of this Melacondra unfallen or just maybe subtly fallen just a lot better than us type of planet it seems appealing the pleasures are properly oriented and there's just a harmony among it so why do we have to deal with mm. all the suffering but if we mm. take this is true that that's what was told to him the passion the suffering like more wonders it's almost like because of what we've gone through we get this better good almost like it's yes. this most yes. incredible redemptive story because of the suffering that we have to go through and so i think there's there's a power and a beauty to to potentially that and i think that is probably what he was told well and i really wonder if our world was redeemed by maladil himself because it was led astray by the bento yarsa by satan in the garden I wonder if maybe, um, I'm still not convinced that Malachandra is sinless, but I wonder if because their Oyarsa always tended it well, maybe uh, Malachandra is corrected, right? Not redeemed. Because redeemed means bought back from the lost. And we were lost as soon as we disobeyed 
Um, and our Oyarsa, instead of leading us to, to choose from the right tree, the tree of life, uh, our Oyarsa choose, led us to choose from the wrong tree. So I wonder if perhaps um, this world was corrected and rightly shepherded by Oyarsa. So I'm sure those are some of the things that he talked about. But rigidity, rigidity. One, <laughs> but not to take up too much time, but I will just say too, Andrew, because we have talked about this. I actually think you're correct now. I hadn't got, I hadn't really noticed that until the end of this book, but the last chapter when we now see that the Bent One attempted to take Malachandra and he did successfully plant the the wisdom of death, but not the wisdom of how to endure it. And he had to unbody some of them. And so there's no mm -hmm. doubt the the quote unquote the sinfulness did come into Malachandra, but it sounds like it was weeded out. And so I think you're correct. It might be correct language. Hmm. Maybe not fallen, but stumbled. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think you're both correct. I definitely think he spoke about the crucifixion and the coming of Maleldil and taking on of our nature. And you can find a, a really nice summary of that at the end of Murphy Thelen's uh, production of Out of the Silent Planet, which was recently released, starring voice acting from several prominent C.S. Lewis podcasters. <laughs> I'll put a I'll put a link in the show notes to that particular point. I think I thought it was done really nicely. Murphy, I had so much fun. <laughs> but anyway, Oyasa offers Ransom a choice to either stay on Malacandra or attempt the trip home. He chooses to risk the journey, and Oyasa approves. Mm. Ransom says that love of your own kind is a moral principle. He says, love of your own kind is not the grace of the laws, but you, Oyasa, have said that it is a law. So he is choosing a good. And unlike Western, Ransom's loves are more rightly ordered, so they don't have the same destructive qualities. But Oyasa gives two pieces of assistance to Ransom on the journey home. He says that he's going to remove all weapons from the ship except one for Ransom, and the Eldilla won't let Weston and Vine kill Ransom while they're traveling home. <laughs> it's kind of funny because Ransom's shocked that he didn't think that this might be the first thing that Weston and Divine do in an attempt <laughs> to survive longer in space by killing him because a dead body doesn't have to breathe or eat food. Yes. Well, and, and I would have been as gullible as he was. By the way, this whole idea of greatest, and I don't want to get bogged down, but um, it's not the greatest law. So the two great commandments are to love God and to love neighbor. I wonder if he's making a, a for loves kind of distinction, that the greatest law is agape, but what he chooses is another great law, which is storgy, which is love for the people of his mm. own kind. Right. And mm. so he is choosing a love. And of course, the, f well, I won't go there. <laughs> what final assessment does Oyasa make of ransom? It goes back to the key word that we highlighted a bit last year, and it's fear. You know, he, he really came into this whole thing on a similar playing field of them, not with the exact same worldview, but with the fear. Is, is Diana had pointed out in the conversation that I had with her and Andrew did, he came with an openness and he was willing mm -hmm. to be corrected and to embrace and to, to honestly, to go into the, to not let the fear cripple him. You know, he went into constantly that next situation where there was some unknown, some unknown creature, some quote unquote alien type thing, foreigner. And he just, he leaned into it. And so he's guilty of, yes, he had the fear and the fear isn't good. And the fear can rule your life and the fear can plague your actions and your behavior, but he didn't let it. Hmm. 
he he didn't let it honestly um, corrupt him. Totally, I should say. It reminds me of the passage in um, in Prince Caspian, and the conviction, the bad part that cho- Susan chooses is fear. Right. Mm-hmm. Then, after an awful pause, the deep voice said, "Susan." Susan made no answer, but others thought she was crying. You have listened to your fears, child. Come, let me breathe on you. Forget them. Are you brave again? A little, Aslan. And so this idea that fear is a shortcoming, fear is a product of sin and something that one can choose. And what you see until we have faces, and I'm not bringing it up for that reason, but um, being for all these reasons free from the fear of God. But Orwell talks about her fears all the time, and it's only at the end that she gets rid of her fears. If we look at the Narnian trajectory of fear as being kind of a, a, a sign of spiritual weakness, not spiritual absence, but, um, but just of weakness, and maybe it's this fear that he's convicting Ransom of as well. And Oyasa seems to suggest that Ransom's journey, the one that he's about to go on back to Earth, could be purgative. He says, the journey you go on is your pain and perhaps your cure, for you must mm-hmm. either be mad or brave before it's ended. Mm-hmm. I did want to stop there real quick. What did you guys think of, I put in my notes, discuss the mad part of it. So is he essentially saying, how I interpreted it at least was, if you let the fear dictate your life, God is going, we've talked about this in previous episodes and even other seasons. I'm under the belief that if you stubbornly have an incorrect worldview, you let your fear dictate your life, you make the wrong decisions because of that, but you do desire the Lord, your path might be a bit painful because he's trying to correct you and he's trying to help you see the right way. But is the idea here, if you never, ever actually change, by the end of it, you will kind of go insane because of the pain that you endured? Do you think that's what he's kind of saying? Or like it will push you, like I guess if we use Weston as the perfect example, it seemed to just push him more and more and more into his narrow worldview despite being countered. I mean, I'm just kind of curious what you guys think about that. I think the choice is the choice of the great divorce. You either head up into the high hills of heaven or you go back Mm -hmm. to the gray town and become nothing. I think that's what mm. madness is. Mm. Infinite f- hopes and fears may both be yours. And Orwell replies, long did I hate you, long mm-hmm. did I fear you. I mean, I think that this um, part of that whole book is about Lewis finishing what he's talking about here is the relationship between faith and fear and the correction of the fear to being the fear of the Lord. And he was a little fearful. And he shouldn't have been. And I think that maybe Oyarsa is convicting Ransom of not believing in Jesus or not thinking that Jesus could travel from Earth to Mars, right? And part of his fear is because he didn't trust in the Lord. And even in the extreme circumstance of being on another planet and chased down and shot at, um, we can be safe in the idea that, that God will protect us from even that which, for which, of which we fear the most. Hmm. Ayasa commands Ransom regarding Western Divine to keep a very close eye on them if they actually make it back to Earth. He says they may yet do much evil in and beyond your world. And interestingly, Ayasa is confident that Ransom 
he won't go unaided in this challenge. He says, when you have need, some of our people will help. Maleldil will show them to you. It may even be that you and I shall meet again while you are still in the body. For it is not without the wisdom of Maleldil that we have met now, that I have learned so much of your world. And he makes this comment. I begin to see that there are Eldila who go down into your air, into the very stronghold of the Bent One. Your world is not so far shut as was thought in these parts of heaven. What does he mean? <laughs> I underline this part too. There wasn't a ton in this <laughs> chapter as they go on the journey, we'll see. But this really stuck out to me going back to your comment right before that too of if we if we put this into context and we'll see this in the postscript too of what's really Lewis is trying to combat here is a really dangerous worldview, a really dangerous worldview when you think of the proper worldview, eternity, salvation, and surrendering to it. And so he's he's somewhat discussing that when you get back there, this Western divine, this worldview, like now that you know, you need to combat that. And I love, David, you, you had started right, some of our people will help you, but I actually underlined just right before that. You know, watch those two bent ones, be courageous, fight them. And when you have need, some of our people will help you. And I think there's a lot of wisdom in that. Like we have a duty today. There's a battle going on of good and evil. There's a battle, a spiritual battle for our salvation, our souls, for truth, goodness, beauty. And as hopefully people that have seen the the truth, we have a duty to combat the negative worldviews because those can be incredibly dangerous to the salvation of individuals. And when you think of Death is not the end of it, but it's just an unbodying. We have a duty to fight these views and there's an actual eternal battle going on. And so I really love that. Be courageous, fight them. Like we do have a calling as individuals. I think of John Eldridge. He talks about you need to be fighting for the kingdom of God. Well, and you think about what other angels um, have been able to. So Michael and Gabriel are archangels. They are not planetary angels. These are angels from the court of heaven. And those angels have been able to come down into Earth's, you know, into the sublunary, you know, into Earth's orbit. And so I think that um that there are some spiritual forces that are fighting on our behalf. Uh, I think that they may, that may be at least some of what he means. Mm, I would agree with that. That was my conclusion, that the quarantine of Earth isn't quite so tight as he had imagined, and that Earth does have its champions and those who help in that fight. No, we're not alone. No, exactly. No. And Oyasa ends the conversation by saying that the current year is a thing of prophecy. What did you make of this prophecy? <laughs> so he's writing in 38, and he's writing as Hitler's rising to power, and everybody can see what's going to happen. And so I think that Lewis is perhaps even hoping that the war will bring about some spiritual forces and become the last war. I mean, I think that he's thinking that it may be a spiritual war as well. Well, and, and David, I think, um, I don't want to jump ahead, but to answer your question, we see that a bit in the postscript where, I mean, it also talks mm -hmm. about, it says, um, and we also have evidence increasing almost daily that Weston or the force or forces behind Weston will play a very important part in the events of the next few centuries. And, and unless we prevent them, a very disastrous one. We do not mean that they are likely to invade Mars. Or, our cry is not merely hands off Melacandra. The dangers to be feared are not planetary, but cosmic, or at least solar. 
Like there's something big. I I wish I would have known that even after interviewing a few of the scholars in the beginning. Like I wish I would have known that statement before I had started this book because that really opens the eyes of what Lewis is trying to communicate here. There's a genuine battle going on. Mm -hmm. And he's giving you not only the different worldviews that are being battled here, but he's also giving you the different approaches of the path you can choose between Ransom and Weston. And so you just see so much. Yeah, absolutely. The prophecy that's mentioned begins like this. It seems to me that this is the beginning of more comings and goings between the heavens and the world and between one world and another. And he, he goes on just to say something's about to happen. And I realized today that we have an almost identical line in The Magician's Nephew. It opens with, it is a very important story because it shows how all the comings and goings between our world and the land of Narnia began. Here's my crazy theory. Does Ransom's trip coincide with Diggory and Polly's journey? Matt isn't going isn't to quite get this until yeah, he's read I don't know it. Who those are. But mm. is this the beginning of Narnia as well? Was this also the thing that was prophesied? Crazy fan theories to be sent to contact at pintswithjack.com. No, this is a continuation because Diggory and Polly's journey began in the 1800s. Oh, you're right. They, they were right. Edwardian, weren't they? It began in the days of the Bastable children, right? Mm. And so it, that that's what opened it up, right? But remember, and hang on, let me look. So Narnia ends in 19... 49 mm -hmm. because that's when the in railway disaster happens and that's the last battle so uh but but i think that you're right to link it to magician's nephew because every and one during I, I used to have a book group called the the caffeinated lamppost society and one day we found out um that the magician's nephew the wood between the worlds is interplanetary and so when they jump in the pool, they go to a different planet. And so there are other planets, like there are other pools. And so the comings and goings, which Diggory, and remember, Professor Kirk is still alive during the, um, the, the space trilogy, the, the, the Ransom trilogy. And we know that Lewis links Dr. Ransom with screw tape. And so maybe there's this kind of hint of a cohesiveness. So... Mm -hmm. If Diggory starts the comings and goings, then many pools may be, um, you know, a, a real interesting way to think about their, some of their travels. The CSLCU, the C.S. Lewis Cinematic Universe. I like it. <laughs> yes, exactly. So vast crowds gather to see the spaceship depart. Weston is feeling exhausted from his calculations. Divine is hysterical and slightly hungover because he's <laughs> uh, discovered the uh, alcoholic drink on Malacandra and he's been teaching Fiffle Triggy how to smoke. Which I don't think is necessarily a bad thing. No, no. I mean, you got, you got the nose for it. Uh, Weston and Divine aren't really happy to find themselves unarmed, but at 1 p.m., regardless, they enter the ship and Weston reminds them not to tax the oxygen with unnecessary movement or talk saying that he's only going to speak in an emergency, to which Divine says, well, thank God for that anyway. <laughs> and when Ransom gets into the ship, he goes to the bottom of the ship and lies down what will eventually become the skylight. They've already left mm -hmm. the planet's surface by the time he gets there, and he sees more and more of the valleys come into view as they ascend, and he sees the rosy, petrified forests. 
In the northeast, he sees the Yellow and Ochre Deserts, and to the west, he sees the Fiffletriggy Lowlands. What does Ransom realize as he's looking down on Malacandra? <laughs> he realizes, I think, the smallness of his own world um, as he's experienced it, and how little he really knows. I mean, when he first arri- arrives on Malacandra, he knows how little he knows about Earth. And now he's discovering how little he knows. And David, you're going to have to give us a, a reference to this. What is the comparison between Worthing and Brighton? Tell us what mm-hmm. he means there. Well, it's, it's just it's just a very short distance. Uh, the way I would compare it to uh, the comparison I would give, which I think more people would be able to relate to, it's like when I meet a foreigner who's visited London for a week and they think they know England. I was like, England is far <laughs> more than just London. You have seen a section of England, not the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Well, and Worthing and Brighton are not the highlights necessarily of England, right? I like Brighton. <laughs> Brighton's delightful. <laughs> I'm not disparaging it, but to have that only that small slice and say, okay, this mm-hmm. is what Earth must be like. Right? Yes, exactly. It's kind of like ordering one item on the menu, eating it, and thinking that's what every single dish of the restaurant is going to be like. But Ransom actually realizes something else. He realizes that the Handramets weren't natural valleys. He says they're too geometric. Mm. And this kind of suggests that the drawings that he saw on the stones back at the grove described history in Mm. a literal fashion. That this Mm. was an action that was taken by the different creatures and Oyasa to protect Malakandra from Satan's attack. And there's this line in there where Ransom realizes that maybe even the line between mythology and history and fact Mm -hmm. can't quite so clearly be drawn. Yes. Yes, I love that, and and I think that that um, that kind of helps to to kind of place planet Narnia, and <laughs> you know that mythology and history are much more closely related. Um, magic and spirituality are much more closely closely related in the medieval period, and so I think that that Ransom's discovering something about the fabric and the nature of very, the very nature of story and the intellectual disciplines, and and I think that Michael Ward kind of stitches mythology into truth um, with his planet Narnia in a way that I think is very reminiscent of these passages. As he looks back on Malacandra, what has he noticed that he'd never noticed before? This I found rather funny and kind of bewildering. Two moons. <laughs> yeah. It's, right. It's like Tatooine. How did he miss that? <laughs> yeah. Well, and as perceptive as perceptive as he was, and I don't know, you know, maybe the maybe the Hrasa culture goes to bed early. That True. or fear, you know, he had a lot of other stuff on his mind. You know how when you mm-hmm. have one thing you're really afraid of, you tend to not notice a whole bunch of other things. Yeah, and also I we've been looking through Ransom's eyes the entire time, and repeatedly come back to this idea that this book is about perception. And he's realizing that mm-hmm. even though he perceived more than Western divine, there was still so much that he missed. Yeah. And at that point, there's this really interesting line. He returns to find Malacandra now even smaller than our moon, and its colors were inter- imperceptible, and it's surrounded by stars. And the text says, it had ceased to be Malacandra. It was only Mars. What do you make of that line? Mm. Mm-hmm. I think he kind of means, you know, it's just this kind of categorical, planetary, historical, Earth-related. I mean, they don't call themselves Mars. 
and Mars mm. is the earthly name. And so as he separates from that reality, he begins to distance himself and he begins. So what he's doing, of course, is he stopped, he's stopped looking along Malachandra and he's looking at Mars, right? Yeah. And he's coming back to a terrestrial frame of reference. Related to Andrew, just expanding just slightly more on that, I think there's a lesson in there of how you can look at something or enter into something. And so mm. I think Lewis is just trying to encourage here. I mean, you can just look at this as Mars from a distance and this object up there, or you can realize there's some incredible history and teeming with life and something. And it's the same thing with the space heavens, you know, Mars, Malachandra, space heavens. You know, there's just, it's, it's that whole theme. And I think he's just trying to make, to hit that home that your perception, David, you use that word astutely is incredibly important. Mm. And speaking of heavens, on this return journey, although he still has occasional moments of doubt, he firmly believes that space is now the heavens. These are the, the life-giving. And there are even echoes of The Great Divorce and some other unnamed book uh, that I'm not going to mention regarding the claims of <coughs> excess of vitality. It's almost as though the heavens are more substantial. Heavenly realities are more real. And Ransom even half hopes that if he dies, it'll be from that encounter that the spaceship will disintegrate and he will be exposed to the heavens and and mm -hmm. die in that way. I, I underline that whole section and I start it because this is the culmination of his journey. It's the confirmation of the complete transformation of his understanding from space to heavens. And his understanding of the wisdom to endure death. If we go back mm -hmm. to last week's episode, he's he's received this wisdom. He's understands what's going on. I mean, I think that's just, it literally says quickly swallowed up in a sense of all, which made his personal fate seem wholly insignificant. We mm -hmm. see in here like this, he's, mm -hmm. he's ready. They're just. And there's so much I could read there, but um, <laughs> to be, I want to read this though, to be let out, to be free, to dissolve into the ocean of eternal noon seemed to him at certain moments, a consummation even more desirable than the return to earth. And that's going back to what we talked about last week. This is all connecting the, the rightly ordered loves, the first things, second things. He wants to go back to earth. There's nothing wrong with that. That's a beautiful love. He wants to be a part of that. But at the same time, he is now seeing that it also would be equally beautiful to be dissolved in the eternal heavens and to, to go into there, to unbodied, potentially. Well, and think about it. He's a Christian. He doesn't want to stay on the earth, nor does he want to go under the earth. He wants to go to heaven. And literally, geographically, <laughs> especially outside of the sphere of mm. the Fulk, the, the silent one, outside of the sphere of the false Oyarsa, of the bent Oyarsa of, of earth. He's closer to heaven and closer to, and he realizes that it's a peopled world. It's a world peopled with angels. He's closer mm -hmm. to God. And in some ways, he's almost like Lazarus, who having come alive again, has to die his death again. Right, Lewis has a poem about that called Stephen to Lazarus and mm -hmm. claims that Stephen was the first martyr. And so he wants to stay in heaven. Lazarus was the first and martyr. 
Lazarus was the, yeah was the first martyr. Sorry, because he had to die all over again. Here he is sinking down into this terrible earth where he has to fight and defend, but he'd rather stay in heaven. And I don't blame him for wanting his his terrestrial his. It's not even a terrestrial life, his material life to end, his galactic life to end, so that his heavenly life can really begin. Can't say that I blame him. It's echo St. Paul. I'd rather depart and be with the Lord, which is far better. And, and with that, I want to read one little last bit of this before we move on, because in case people aren't reading the book and just enjoying listening to us. And if he had felt some such lift of the heart when first he passed through heaven on their outward journey, he felt it now tenfold. Remember those first mm-hmm. chapters when we talked about the light pierced into him and gave him this warmth. For now, he was convinced that the abyss space was full of life in the most literal sense, full of living creatures. Mm-hmm. Mm. Mm-hmm. And he detects the presence of those living creatures. He doesn't see them, but he knows that the Eldila are all around him. And it even mm-hmm. puts his life into perspective when placed against the fecundity of not only Earth, but the heavens and all of the creatures that he's met so far. David, I don't, this is a compliment, so you'll appreciate this. I don't know why we ever switched hosts because you really do transition incredibly well. <laughs> you should have just been <laughs> the leader every episode and Andrew and I just the colored commentary because listeners, you don't really like, he's looking at his notes. He, the next thing is all about Adila and he takes my last sentence and perfectly segues <laughs> into the Adila. <laughs> I appreciate the compliment, but you've now spent a minute that I wanted to move ahead. So, Get out of my way. (laughs) (laughs) Batesian rigidity. (laughs) So, as I was saying, the journey starts to get really hard. It starts to get really hot and bright. And it seems that Weston is leading them on the inside of Earth's orbit in an attempt to catch up with it, to get home Mm -hmm. quicker. And this has brought them much closer Mm -hmm. to the sun than on their outbound journey. And... Everyone seems to be frazzled by this, by this experience. Weston, he almost seems to be letting go of his desire to survive. He's not checking his calculations anymore. He's almost being careless in the control room. And he even lets Ransom, you know, a philologist, a non-scientific person, at the controls. And Divine is kind of like a walking zombie at this point. Yeah. But they finally get to see Earth. But on day 87, Ransom notices that the shape looks a little wrong. And when Weston sees it, he just becomes this blubbering mess. And both Ransom and Divine take over. What is it that happens then? Well, he gives up because he realizes that the moon is in his way. Mm -hmm. Right? And then they begin to get smaller. And so I've got to, I I have to admit that um, this is one of those passages. It's kind of like, and forgive me. It's kind of like book two of Till We Have Faces. It's so good and it's so racing on that I. it's hard for me to slow down and read it paragraph by paragraph. I want to take it in great gulps and, you know, mm. get through because Lewis succeeds in raising the tension of the story to see if they'll get home. And, you know, it's the, it's the Aristotelian draw of tragedy. Aristotle said the reason why we love Greek tragedy is because we know how it's going to end. But the writer kind of still captures us, still hooks us in. I know what's going to happen. I know that he's going to end up at the pub drinking a pint of bitter. But Cheers. even today, rereading it again, it's like, oh my gosh, I want to, yeah, I, are they going to make it? And he raises the tension. And so that's part of 
the charm of this book. I think narratively, it's really brilliantly done. It's the very poetic line, in sight of harbour, they were being forced to turn back to the open sea. Mm. Just vivid. And it looks like they're not going to make it. And so seeing that there's very little now to do, Ransom leaves the control room and Mm -hmm. he prepares himself for death. The text says there was nothing for Ransom to do. He was sure now there was soon to die. With this realization, the agony of his suspense suddenly disappeared. Death, whether it came now or some 30 years later on Earth, rose up and claimed his attention. There are preparations Mm -hmm. a man likes to make. And after he makes his preparations, yes. he takes a nap. Yeah. And let's just highlight the dichotomy between the responses of the two worldviews. Like, I, I, I don't remember this perfectly, but am I correct that Weston or Divine or one was like crying practically? I mean, it was an oh, agony. Yeah, there was like a, there was a despair. And then there's for, on one side of it, and that's the, the worldview that we should not be espousing to. And on the other side, it's just a resignation. This was going to come anyways. Let me just be prepared for this. Let me understand that there's more to the soul, the hanau, after the unbodying. Mm-hmm. And then Ransom awakes in darkness. And he hears the sound of something. He hears rain. What's mm-hmm. happened? <laughs> the first time I read this, I reread these couple of paragraphs a few times. It's like, wait, did I miss something? Yes, you did, because we sleep with Ransom. And I found it um, fascinating that there's this contrast between rain and the tinkling that happens with the, with the meteorites on the, on the spaceship. Mm-hmm. But what happened? How did they get back to Earth? They, they were heading back out to open <laughs> sea. They were going to miss it. I think Oyarsa helped them. Mm-hmm. I think you're right. I think some Eldilla were sent to help and maybe even handed over to the angels yes. of Earth. Yes. Yeah. So we have some of our people there, right? Exactly. Uh, and so maybe it is, uh, maybe it's one of the angels that we know. Well, Ransom struggles under our terrestrial gravity. Remember, he's uh, been as light as a feather, so to speak, while on Malacandra. And so he manages to get out of the ship and he basks in the rain. I noticed that actually mm-hmm. rain wasn't mentioned on Malacandra, so maybe they don't have it. Irrigation happens another way. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. the scene is very reminiscent of near the end of the Shawshank Redemption. If you've seen the movie, you know the scene I'm talking about. Sure. So good. Mm-hmm. What does he then do? Tell us, Matthew. I'm waiting for you. No, no. no. Fine, <laughs> fine, fine. <sighs> he goes and gets a pint. Cheers. Well, even before that, he trips, you know, and he tastes the earth. Mm. Let me say, too, as he's drinking that pint, his mind is probably filled with a wonder in all of the heavens that are teeming <laughs> with life. No, I think he was it blessing is, the is. beer that was teeming across his tongue. <laughs> <laughs> well, he can only contemplate the heavens fully when he's having a good mouthful, a good, a good, uh, a good draft of Entwash. Exactly. I would say cheers to that. (laughs) Yes, and to Matthew once more. Yes. And as Ransom enjoys his bitter, it's time for us to wrap up this episode. Uh, We haven't quite come to the end of the bitter, but we are certainly at the bitter end, or at least very nearly. Uh, (laughs) Is there anything else you two would like to say before we sign off? Honestly, I think of the exact same thought I thought of last day and then the last one. Just encouraging people to really process 
as we've done this in real time, new thoughts have come to me, even just in the last recording in this one, that just seem to be really powerful lessons Lewis is trying to communicate. And so let's just not miss them. You know, try to try to digest mm. this. Think of how this applies in our own current spiritual life, the the calling we might have. How are we ransom to the Weston-esque philosophies that are potentially surrounding us in our daily life? And what's our role in the battle? And how much are we trusting? You know, how much are we entering into it with courage, not fear? And then trusting mm. that when we do have fear, the Lord will come to our side. Um, I think that would just be my final concluding thoughts. In those last few lines, he recognizes that it's a village. He recognizes that it's a pub. He recognizes that they're speaking English. And so one of the things that happens is by the agape of the Oyarsa and and the, the, the angelic, he's welcomed back to the homely things, right? He's welcomed back to Storgi. Um, although he surprises people by shoving his way in, and we don't know what what pub he's at, what town he's at. I imagine that a little bit of talk, and he'll figure out where he is. And probably, I mean, England is not that huge a place, right? <laughs> and he probably um, is able to feel quite at home. And so, when Lewis says that Storgi is responsible for ninety percent of the solid affection on this earth, um, that's I think part of what Ransom's experience is: the love of the familial uh, and the familiar. And and that's part of why he orders a pint and enjoys it uh, with English voices all around him. Would that we were in a pub all together lifting a glass today, gentlemen. Mm -hmm. And if any of you have seen Kill Bill Part 2, that's how I imagine him going into the pub. There's a scene where our protagonist comes in, let's just say looking very disheveled, and asks for a glass of water. But this is much better because mm -hmm. he mm -hmm. asks for a pint. I've got a way better one that's more current. All right. Land on me. Top Gun to Maverick after he achieves Mach 10. And remember how this – have you guys seen it? Not yet. I saw the original. <laughs> uh, well, I'm not really giving away any of the key thing. He ends up falling out of practically space. He's so high at Mach 10 and he's literally full of dust and just completely – out of life and he walks in and just needs like literally can't speak words because he just achieved the grace and like gets handed up a, a, a water or something like that and just drinks the a whole bit thing. of that <laughs> <laughs> yes i think that if it were if 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 jesus walked in uh in england's shores and england's lands he would have turned wine into bitter <laughs> not not even water into or wine water but into wine bitter. into bitter yes that's definitely an upgrade <laughs> Well, as we sip the last parts of our Ransom's Bitter, I've got a couple of audience questions for this episode. The three humans have a horrible trip back to Earth. What's the worst trip you've ever taken? Bonus points oh, if it makes nice. us laugh. <laughs> and my other question, what do you think happened during the time between Ransom falling asleep and waking up on Earth? How do you think yeah. they safely landed? I want other, other theories, the more wild and conspiratorial, the better. And please email those to us at contactatpinesofjack.com, use the contact form on the website, or message us on social media. Can I just say too, that I want to thank the listener that fully understood my aunt mole reference and sent it to us through the contact. Uh, oh, that was, that was incredible. Oh, yes. I, I will read that in the retrospective because that deserves special praise. He's getting a glass oh, for that. Absolutely. I don't, nobody has ever understood that well, ever. 
<laughs> if if you've seen Atlantis, you just knew because that creature is so defining. But not everyone has seen Atlantis, and so it it, it wasn't sticking to me. But I was like, I remember seeing something that looks identical to this creature. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I hear the call for final drinks. So thanks to all of our listeners, Patreon supporters, particularly our top-tier supporters. Matt1, Matt2, Jake and Erica, Marvin, Joelle, Deborah, Amanda, Emmy, Thomas, Bill, Joanna, Bud, Shane, Kay, Paul, Kimberly, Gillis, Gary, Stephen, Kelly, Chris, James, Kate, Peter, David, Angela, and Rowdy. We pray for all of you every Tuesday and for all of the prayer requests on our Slack channel. Finally, of course, thanks to our audio engineer, Taylor Schroll, who makes us sound so Taylor. wonderful. I'm very sorry if you could pick up some of the uh, lawnmower that was in the background. Not one, but two of my neighbors decided to do that while we were recording. But Taylor is such a wonderful editor, I'm sure he'll make it sound wonderful. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend and perhaps share a bitter together. And next time we'll be covering the final chapter and postscript. And so please join us then. When we'll continue going further up and further in. Conbe. 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 Cheers. <laughs> <laughs>